Chapter 2, The Beginnings of a New Zion, Divine Intervention, Marriage, and Seeking a New Home. Fear not, let earth and hell combine against you, for if ye are built upon my rock, they cannot prevail. Doctrine and Covenants 6, verse 34. Heading, Consigned to Death. Since the days of Abraham, in times of grave danger for the house of Israel, it is the God of Abraham who comes to their rescue, as both God and his people remember Abraham and the covenant made to him. When the Israelites groaned under the heavy burden of Egyptian bondage, God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, whereupon he announced himself to Moses and his colleagues as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Later, when Israel was about to be destroyed in the wilderness of for worshiping the golden calf, Moses persuaded God to mercy by imploring him to remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In each of these dangerous times, notes a prominent scholar, the memory of Abraham induces a turn of mind and opens a possibility for overcoming a dire crisis. Likewise, at the commencement of the New Testament story with Israel under Roman oppression, God's impending intervention in sending his son is hailed by Mary and Zechariah, praising God for rescuing Israel in remembrance of his covenant to Abraham. A similar phenomenon is seen repeatedly in the Book of Mormon. Limhi's people in bondage are counseled to put your trust in God, in that God who was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. While the three different groups of God's delivering Alma's people from bondage all emphasize that it was done only by the power of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Later, when the Nephite nation is delivered from their enemies, they declared, May the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob protect this people in righteousness. And when Moroni seeks to convince Latter-day readers about the power of the Almighty, he promises to show them a God of miracles, even the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. What all these passages consistently presuppose is some kind of miraculous deliverance of Abraham himself, momentous enough to inspire his future descendants to trust in that same God for their own deliverance in the face of otherwise impossible odds. No such event in Abraham's life appears in Genesis, but it was the opinion of no less an authority than Nachmanides, the learned medieval rabbi, who wrote an extensive commentary on the Torah, that Genesis had, in fact, once contained just such an account, but that scripture no longer mentions this miracle. Fortunately, with the restoration of the gospel came the restoration of scripture, the book of Abraham, narrating that singular miracle, which is similarly described in numerous other ancient sources. The story begins with young Abraham on a collision course with the world around him. He was opposing the practices not merely for a, wicked, a few wicked individuals, but of a whole society whose hearts were set to evil, and who would tolerate no questioning of their evil ways. The result was a tumult not unlike Joseph Smith would excite, part of what Hugh Nibley calls the astonishing parallels between the two even as boys. The youthful Abraham, like the youthful Joseph Smith, seems to have been in trouble with his society and caused a great stir and annoyance when we read of an innocuous young man exciting general uproar throughout the length of Mesopotamia or causing a mighty monarch to spend sleepless nights, we smile and brush the thing aside as the stuff of legend. Such things, we say, just don't happen in real life. Only, oddly enough, there is an exception. In the cases of real prophets, they do happen, as modern history attests. What would students say 3,500 years from now to the proposition that thousands of years before there lived a naive, uneducated, and guileless country boy in a small village somewhere in the woods beyond what were known as the Algeny Mountains, 
who by a few tactless and of unbelievable artless remarks created the greatest excitement in the large seaboard cities of the continent, was hotly denounced in thousands of pulpits throughout the civilized world, and was given front-page coverage in the major newspapers of the capitals of Europe, could a less plausible story be imagined? Jewish tradition remembers that when Abraham attacked the doctrines of his fellow men who adhered to erroneous views, he was denounced and scorned, reviled and cursed, but responded only with silence. Nevertheless, they rose against him, looted his property, imprisoned him. According to ancient Jewish traditions, Abraham was incarcerated several times for lengthy periods, perhaps years, in cities in the region of present-day eastern Turkey. From the crucible of tribulation can come greatness, and Abraham is the parade example he learned compassion by being an outcast himself observes hugh nibley several sources report miraculous protection during the difficult trial when abraham was deprived of food and water by direct order of the king and the lord provided the needed sustenance abraham used the occasion to teach the astonished jailer about the power of the true god and the jailer believed the incredible persecution heaped upon young Abraham foreshadowed the same fate awaiting Joseph Smith, who would marvel at the bitter persecution and reviling he was called to pass through while yet in his youth, and who would endure imprisonment and privation. Both were warned at an early age by God of the tribulation that awaited them in this life. In this world, God told young Abraham, thy life will indeed be precarious, but thy rewards await thee in the hereafter. The youthful Joseph Smith was similarly told to be patient in afflictions, for thou shalt have many, but endure them, for lo, I am with thee even unto the end of thy days. Thus did the Almighty predict their many problems, but why did he allow such problems in the lives of these choicest of servants? While the prophet Joseph languished in liberty jail, he received a revelation assuring him of the unjustified maltreatment would give him experience and be for his good. What Brigham Young later said of Joseph Smith seems to apply equally to Abraham. He could not have been perfected, though he had lived a thousand years, if he had received no persecution. In the words of Jewish scholars, great though Abraham was, he became greater with each triumphant surmounting of a new trial. As did his future posterity, as understood by Judaism, every trial that he had remained with us and became part of us, as God proceeded each time to chisel a new trait into the eternity of Israel. The same truth that Abraham preached to the lowly jailer, he was no less shy in proclaiming to the kings. O Nimrod, declared Abraham in one of apparently many face-to-face -face dialogues with the monarch, I ask you to become a true believer. But Nimrod and the others in power remained as hard-hearted as ever, and inspired by Satan, decided that Abraham was to become the victim of the human sacrifices that he had preached against. Abraham's message was dangerous, striking at the very heart of the royal ideology that served as the foundation of Nimrod's power. No wonder that Nimrod finally decided that Abraham's presence would be a menace to his throne. Abraham received no assistance from his father, whose worldly wealth and status depended directly on Nimrod's favor. A midrash tells of a time when the Lord warned Abraham of the evil intent of his smooth-talking relatives and own father. Thy father and thy brethren speak fair words, and do not believe them, for they are all in conspiracy against thee, seeking to slay thee. In Abraham's own words, reported in the book of Abraham, My fathers hearken not unto my voice, but endeavor to take away my life. Jewish tradition tells that it was Terah himself who delivered Abraham into the hands of Nimrod. The book of Abraham tells of an altar which stood by the hill called Potiphar's Hill, at the head of the plain of Alashem. 
where human sacrifices were offered, and it came to pass that the priests laid violence upon me, that they might slay me also. A Turkish source relates that they took him from the place where he had kept him bound with heavy fetters. Nibley explains that the setting is typical of the ancient cult places with their broad plain of assembly. The elevated mound, hill, or tower, hence pyramid or ziggurat, and the altar for sacrificing. Jewish tradition tells of a vast audience assembled, all the king's servants, princes, lords, governs, and judges, and all of the inhabitants of the land, about 900,000 in number, came to see Abram, and the woman and the little ones crowded together, and there was not a man left that did not come on that day to behold the scene. One can get some idea of the horrific scene from atop one of the pyramids at Teotihuacan outside Mexico City, where Aztec priests likewise sacrificed human beings in front of multitudes. Why the grandiose display? Because these were not just executions, but carefully staged rites designed by the ruling powers pursuant to the elaboratively evil theology. As one scholar has explained about human sacrifice amongst the Mayas, it was a public spectacle, a collective experience, that crowds pressed to witness carefully orchestrated to increase the power of the ruling elite. But in Abraham's case, there was something more, something that made this particular sacrifice unique in all of history. Abraham's own illustration of the scene shows a ceremonial ritual setting with himself lying on an altar shaped like a lion, next to which are idols representing different gods, including the gods of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. But standing over the altar is a figure described as the priest of both Pharaoh and of Elkanah, and later being probably one of the, that circle of gods attested from the earliest inscriptions of the 30th century BC, who were current at the Egyptian royal court, as well as having their own cult places. In Abraham's case, the cult place was outside of Egypt, on Asiatic soil, in the land of Ur, Yet there is still heavy Egyptian influence, calling to mind that in Jewish tradition, Nimrod is repeatedly referred to as a descendant of Canaan, whose sister, as the Book of Abraham relates, founded the first dynasty of Egypt with her son as the first pharaoh. An early Samaritan source tells that in the days of Abraham, Egypt and Canaan were ruled by the same monarch, and recent archaeological finds, as explained in Redford's authoritative Oxford Encyclopedia of Ancient Egypt, confirmed that during the second, the early 2nd millennium BC, Egypt exercised great influence in the region of Syria-Palestine. The remarkable thing for Latter-day Saints is that none of this was known in Joseph Smith's day, and in 20th century discovery of Egyptian political and cultural influence during Abraham's day was startling enough to warrant special comment in the 1965 revised edition of the Cambridge Ancient History, Recent discoveries in Syria and Palestine, say the authors, leave the impression of domination by the pharaohs uneven and interrupted, no doubt, but on the whole vigorous. Its precise nature still eludes us. Fifty years ago, it was barely suspected. In view of this progressive increase in our knowledge, we shall err lest if we exaggerate that if we minimize the hold of 12th dynasty had over Syria and Palestine... For the first time in history, those countries experienced the effects of a considerable expansion on the part of Egypt and were likewise subjected to her cultural influence. It is yet another vindication of the Book of Abraham, explaining what was not apparent in Joseph Smith's day, how it was that a ritual human sacrifice could have been performed under Egyptian auspices in Ur of the Chaldees, 
In fact, one of the 12th dynasty pharaohs of that era is famous for his military campaigns abroad, including in Syria, Palestine. That same pharaoh is also on record as an example of an ancient requirement that the king lay down his life for his people in a ceremony to propitiate the gods. It was the ancient penalty of kingship for both Egyptian and Mesopotamian kings, a penalty usually paid by means of a substitute sacrifice who was often a foreigner. Abraham was apparently being offered in that same rite as a sacrifice for the king. As Nibli explains, Abraham is not simply being executed. He is the central figure of an extremely important ritual in which the idolatrous god of Pharaoh's figures conspicuously and the competing powers of heaven and hell come into conflict both in their superhuman and their appointed representatives. The profound irony was that Pharaoh, like Nimrod, one tradition remembers Pharaoh as being the son of Nimrod, was a pretender to the patriarchal authority reserved for Abraham, and had, as we learn from Abraham himself in the book of Abraham, established a highly sophisticated but corrupt imitation of the ancient order of Zion. Hence, the intended sacrifice of Abraham was not only the height of paradox, but was and remains to this day absolutely unique in all of history. The true patriarchal heir to the authority of Zion was about to be slaughtered as a ritual substitute for his rival who falsely acclaimed that very authority. Zion's evil counterfeit, in all its pomp and ceremony, was about to execute the one righteous man whom God had sent to bless the world and reestablish on earth the true Zion. Only in the sacrifice of the Savior do we see a similar phenomenon, of which Abraham on the altar is a striking type. Heading Abram, Abram With Abraham lying bound on the altar, his death already seemed a fait accompli, for the odds appeared overwhelming. With the vast multitude gazing on, Abraham was apparently given a final opportunity to recant. Jewish tradition tells of Satan appearing in human form and urging Abraham to save himself by bowing down in worship to Nimrod. Abraham refused. Even Abraham's mother urged him, her son, to bow down to Nimrod and convert to his faith, and you will be saved. Again, Abraham refused, whereupon his mother said unto him, May the God whom you serve save you. As the solemn sacrificial ceremony proceeded to its climax, the priest of Pharaoh grasped the knife and raised it above Abraham. Meanwhile, according to Jewish tradition, the angels on high were pleading with God to allow them to intervene and save Abraham. But it was Abraham's own prayer that he reported later, As they lifted up their hands upon me, that they might offer me up and take away my life, behold, I lifted up my voice unto the Lord my God. According to Jewish tradition, Abraham raised his eyes heavenward. With a confidence in God which was unshakable, Al-Tabari reports that Abraham also raised his head heavenward. As told in the book of Abraham, the Lord hearkened and heard, and he filled me with the vision of the Almighty, and the angel of his presence stood by me, and immediately unloosed my bands. Abraham heard a heavenly voice call his name twice, Abram, Abram. While the Lord broke down the altar of Elkanah, and the gods of the land, and utterly destroyed them, and smote the priests that he died, that the angel was visible to the onlookers is attested in Jewish and Muslim traditions, which also tells of a great earthquake and of a cataclysmic fire that consumed many thousands of onlookers. Meanwhile, says a Turkish source, in Abraham's breast there was a fire of his love for the Lord. Abraham's deliverance was an unprecedented miracle, noted the Perk de Rabbi Eliezer, and its fame would soon spread to the kings of the earth. Those present that day who witnessed the miracle and escaped the destruction were, as told in the book of Abraham, smitten with a severe famine. 
A Turkish account says that there was a famine in all the countries, and there was no food to be found. It was recompense for the harm that had been designed for Abraham when he had been deprived of sustenance and had then seen the priest lift his hand to inflict the death blow, and it was sent by the Almighty. God took away the rain from them, reports an Islamic tradition. When the angel of the presence intervened and called to Abraham, it was with a message from the Lord. Behold, my name is Jehovah, and I have heard thee, and have come down to deliver thee, and I have come down to visit them, and to destroy him who hath lifted up his hand against thee to take away thy life. Abraham's vision of the Almighty was remembered by the New Testament character Stephen, who just before receiving his own vision of the Almighty, attested that the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Stephen's vision came as he was being martyred on his way to the God of glory. Had Abram died on the altar in Ur after his vision, he also would surely have gone to God as one of history's courageous martyrs, secure in his eternal reward, but it was far more than Abraham's fate that was at stake that day. What if is the thought-provoking question posed by a group of historians who analyze some of history's most pivotal events and how the world would be different if any of those events had gone differently. But none of those events matches what was happening in the balance of that fateful day in Ur over three millennia ago, when Abraham was strapped to an altar. What the world would have been like had he perished that day will become more evident as his story unfolds. But suffice it to say that for now, that in God's grand design, Abraham's work has just begun as the divine instrument of blessing and transforming the world. It was poetic justice then that God had not just saved Abraham, but had done so in the very, in the most visible and dramatic fashion possible, in a way that vindicated him in the eyes of all. Abraham had insisted that the idols were devoid of any power to deliver, and now God had delivered Abraham by breaking down the idols, even as Abraham had broken them down before. Abraham's remarkable deliverance from death is memorialized to this day in a Muslim teaching to consider and understand the trials given to the prophets. As, for example, Abraham with Nimrod and with his father. Indeed, God's protection of Abraham remains a living reality for Muslims who direct their prayers to him, who did succor Abraham against his foes. Judaism similarly declares that we pray to him who answered Abraham. But Abraham's deliverance would prove to be not just inspirational, but actually a pattern of things to come. Many years hence, the same God who had delivered Abraham would call him to lay his beloved son Isaac on the altar in a sacrificial rite. Abraham's deliverance further portended that what will transpire in the last days, when Abraham's righteous posterity will be vastly outnumbered by enemies bent on their destruction. Again, the earth will quake and the Lord will descend with his angels to deliver Abraham's righteous seed and destroy their enemies. Speaking of the great event, Isaiah foretold that those diligent for evil shall be wiped out, but the same Lord who redeemed Abraham. One apocryphal source even specifies that when the Lord comes to work vengeance on the nations, all their idolatry will he destroy, a repeat of Abraham's experience. Abraham's miraculous deliverance on the altar in Ur may well be history's most prophetic similitude of the second coming. Young Abraham had desired to change his world, and God honored that desire by rescuing him in a way that already began some dramatic changes. So marvelous, in fact, was Abraham's deliverance that many of the onlookers, including Nimrod's own officials and ministers, believed in God and bore witness to others of God's power that Abraham was his servant. 
In addition, many followed Abraham home and brought their children to him and said, Now we see that the God in whom thou trustest is the only true God. Teach our children the truth that they may serve him in righteousness. It was but the beginning of tremendous change for the world, for the Lord had designated Abraham as a divine instrument of change. I will take thee away from thy father's house and from all thy kinsfolk into a strange land which thou knowest not of, and I will lead thee by the hand, echoing an ancient Jewish source, telling that Abraham was saved from the depth from death when God put forth his right hand and delivered him. The message from the Lord continued, and I will take thee and I will put Upon thee my name, even the priesthood of thy father, and my power shall be over thee, as it was with Noah, and so shall it be with thee. But through thy ministry my name shall be known in the earth forever, for I am thy God. And the Lord spoke these words, the book of Abraham tells, through the angel of his presence. Who was this angel? Read in isolation, the book of Abraham passage may seem to indicate that the angel was Jehovah himself. My name is Jehovah, and I have come down to deliver thee. Later, however, in the book of Abraham, makes it clear that the angel of the presence was not the Lord, but indeed one of his angels, as Abraham tells the Lord, Thou didst send thine angel to deliver me. In the book of Abraham, the angel remains unnamed, but a passage in the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis seems to suggest a connection with Enoch, whose priesthood, we are told, not only allowed mortals to be translated and taken up into heaven, but also to subdue principalities and powers and to break every band. So had Abraham's bands been broken as the principalities and powers about to destroy him were subdued by the divine power of God's mighty angel. The angel of the presence is mentioned in Exodus 23, 20-21, and is identified as Enoch in Talmudic tradition, and as we shall see in apocryphal Enoch sources. All this suggests that the angel of the presence who rescued Abraham from the altar was none other than his forefather Enoch, about whom Abraham would later learn by reading Enoch's record. From Zion above had come Enoch to rescue Abraham, the man who had already begun to establish Zion in his own heart. It is an event never to be forgotten. At the very moment of the seeming greatest triumph of the forces arrayed in their sanctimonious might to destroy Zion below, Zion above broke through triumphant, and so shall it happen again. Heading, Sarai the Princess if Zion begins in the heart, it culminates in the union of righteous hearts, as when Abraham married the lovely Sarai. All the sources attest that she was a close relative, perhaps a half-sister, the daughter of his father through another wife, or perhaps a niece or a cousin. The close kinship with Abraham and the quality of her character suggest the possibility of mutual sympathy and support long before their marriage. Had she been in the crowd that day when Abraham had been miraculously rescued? Had her prayers and faith helped sustain him during the trials and tribulations? Had her strength already been part of his success? Had she long prayed for their eternal union? Such questions remained, and yet unanswered, although we do have Philo's observation that she was the darling of his heart, and their love for each other was profound. The name Sarai, which God would later change to alter to Sarah, means princess or possibly queen, suggesting royal blood. Was this perhaps a reflection that her bloodline ran through the royal patriarchal line to which Abraham himself was heir? Or was her father, as an Islamic tradition tells, called Haran, and did he rule over the king as king of Haran, perhaps Abraham's uncle? Or, as another Islamic tradition relates, was Sarah closely related to Nimrod, or to one of his highest officials? 
Given Terra's high place at court, some sort of blood relationship with the Nimrod dynasty does not seem impossible. Any or several of these are possible, but whatever the biological relationship with royalty, her name was a fitting title for a woman who possessed singular loveliness of both body and soul. Her unequaled physical beauty would turn the heads of the most powerful kings while she was also gifted with every excellence and great wisdom. It is said that her spiritual attainments matched and in some cases exceeded those of her remarkable husband. She being gifted with profound intuitive perception of spiritual realities. A number of sources assert yet another name for her, Iska, meaning prophetess or seer. And with all her talents, she had a deep love and compassion for the needy. She was indeed a princess in name and in nature. Abraham had been alone in the world, alone against the world, but now everything had changed. It might be said of Abraham and Sarah that what was said of another couple. These two were alone in the world, and yet they might scarcely be said to fill their loneliness, for they were all the world to each other. Jewish tradition insists that they were perfectly suited for each other. Genesis gives no direct description of Sarah as a wife, but Jewish tradition insists that she is the one described in the famous Proverbs passage extolling the virtuous woman, 31 verse 10, or the woman of valor, or the capable or accomplished woman. Her worth is far above rubies, and her husband safely trusts in her. She is an industrious homemaker, a tireless worker, and generous to the poor. She speaks of wisdom and kindness, chesed, is cheerful and hopeful about the future, and is clothed with strength and splendor. She is, in short, the ideal wife deserving of her husband's highest praise. Sarah's example was held up through the generations among her Jewish descendants, in whose homes the Proverbs passage was traditionally recited on the Sabbath Eve. Sarah had her work and Abraham had his, but it was all part of the same cause. From this point on in Abraham's life, to speak of his mission and accomplishments is necessarily to include Sarah also. For as a modern rabbi has observed, she was not merely a strong personality in her own right, but as Abraham's spouse was an important balancing factor in his life. Abraham and Sarah were not just a married couple, but a team, two people working in harmony, as seen in the Genesis portrayal of the two as one unit and as equals, as partners working together for the same goals, walking together along the same path united in thought, word, and deed. Or as told by Philo, everywhere and always she was at his side, his true partner in life and life's events resolved to share alike the good and the ill. Theirs was that priceless unity of heart and mind that is ever the hallmark of Zion. Having established Zion in their own hearts, now to begin, they now began to establish it in their marriage and home, an enduring example for all couples aspiring to build Zion. When the father of a family wishes to make a Zion in his own house, declared Brigham Young, he must take the lead in this good work, which is impossible for him to do unless he himself possesses the spirit of Zion. Before he can produce the work of sanctification in his family, he must sanctify himself, and by this means God can help him to sanctify his family. Abraham and Sarah were part of something larger than either of them. They were a family, they were Zion, and they are to be remembered together. According to Isaiah, the righteous are to look not only to their father Abraham, but also to their mother Sarah. Heading, Get thee out. That Abraham and Sarah ever became present parents at all is a remarkable story, which begins with the poignant verse in Genesis, But Sarai was barren, she had no child. This statement is absent at the corresponding point in the Book of Abraham narrative, indicating a later insertion by Moses, or a subsequent editor, 
remarking on what Abraham himself kindly refused to say, that his beloved wife bore him no child. Moreover, the Genesis statement pointing to Sarah as the cause of the problems presupposes that the writer's knowledge about later events in Abraham's life, which will demonstrate that it was in fact Sarah who was infertile. But the statement is important for the reader, as is as it introduces a key dimension of the story, whose unfolding will include repeated divine promises of a vast and illustrious posterity. Even before the receipt of those promises, however, the inability of Abraham and Sarah to conceive a child would have proven a sore trial. As a modern Jewish commentator notes, the Genesis reports of Sarah's barrenness is frighted with irony. For while all the world effortlessly reproduce, the life of this righteous couple was marked by an emptiness. To this day, infertility can be a unique trial whose depth seems to be fathomed only by those who experience it. Modern women speak of it as an emotional roller coaster, the worst thing I've ever gone through in my life. An emotional agony whose frustrations can indeed seem endless. With each passing month and year comes an ever-heightened awareness of and increased hope for the great blessing that is yet withheld, eclipsing all other concerns and bringing what can turn into a deep anxiety and longing. With the birth of each new infant around them, the sense of loss becomes ever more acute. It was in this context of trial without visible prospects for the future continuation of his line that Abraham was given yet another trial, as he was divinely commanded to cut himself off from his past. Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. It was one of Abraham's greatest tests, notes the Perk de Rabbi Eliezer, for being compelled to pick oneself up and move is one of the most difficult things for a human being to do. This watershed command, portrayed as clearly unprecedented, is reported in both Genesis and the Book of Abraham, the latter indicating that it followed deep reflection on Abraham's part. According to the Zohar, the command came only after the Holy One saw how Abraham bestirred himself and yearned for divine communion. As to how this revelation came, there is no indication of any vision or appearance by the Lord, indicating that the command was probably delivered by the Lord's voice alone, that same voice described by Nephi as a still small voice, though is heard through feeling. Modern Rabbi Levi Meyer observes that when Abraham most certainly heard was an inner voice, something inside him, and the inner voice is a silent voice, one that Abraham would hear on many occasions during his lifetime. For most of us, this voice is drowned out by so many competing voices. This is why Abraham is such an exemplary role model, because he hears the call and goes. In fact, as ancient Midrash recounts, that upon hearing the command without hesitation, Abraham made answer, Lo, I stand before thee, whithersoever thou desirest, I go. To where? A destination unknown? Is there a man who travels without knowing to what destination he travels, asked the Midrash? Abraham was asked to leave the known for the unknown, relying, to borrow Nephi's phrase, wholly upon the merits of him who is mighty to save. Commenting on Abraham's experience, John Taylor stated, I fancy I see some of his neighbors coming to him and saying, Abraham, where are you going? Oh, says he, I do not know. You do not know? No. Well, who told you to go? The Lord. And you do not know where you are going? Oh, no, says he. I'm going to the land that he will show me. I believe in God, and therefore I am starting. Even so, as a modern Jewish writer observes, there must be must have been considerable apprehensiveness among his followers, for their leader could not tell them precisely where he was headed. But Abraham's obedience did not depend on public opinion. Constant obedience would be a hallmark of his life. 
he always, Philo noted, made a special practice of obedience to God. Or, in the words of modern writers, Abram's characteristic was that in simple, unhesitating faith, he acted as one at once on every intimation of the divine will, demonstrating that his one supreme motive was to honor and obey God. It was Abraham's first principle, the foundation of everything else he would accomplish, recalling that teaching of Latter-day leaders that obedience is the first law of heaven, the cornerstone upon which all righteousness and progression rest. Abraham stands out in Judaism as the illuminating example of perfect obedience to the commands of God rendered out of love. And not just Abraham, but Sarah also. A midrash declares that both perfectly obeyed the will of God. In Nibley's words, they kept the law fully and they kept it together. Their perfect obedience is like that of their descendant, Joseph Smith, who stated, I make this my rule. When the Lord commands, do it. Abraham's call to leave his homeland prefigured what would happen with many of his descendants, as noted by a number of Latter-day leaders. When the Latter-day Saints received the gospel in the nations afar, noted Lorenzo Snow, the voice of the Almighty to them was to leave the lands of their fathers to leave their kindreds, as Abraham did. Franklin D. Richards further noted that as Abraham had to leave his native land for a place he had never been, this is just the same feeling and spirit that took hold upon many of our Latter-day Saints in the various nations where we heard this gospel. We became all at once strangers. Our relations and best friends became our enemies. Many of us were turned out and found a gathering place with the saints. Thus did the latter-day fulfillment of Abraham's covenant echo the pattern of his own life. But God's command to Abraham required more than just a physical journey. The phrase, get thee out, or go you forth, or go forth, translates the Hebrew lekleka, an emphatic double imperative rendered by some translations as leave and go, or get up and get going. Implicit in the Hebrew phrase is the idea of separating, so that the Lord was requiring of Abraham a clean break with his traditions and previous way of life, his environment, associations, experiences, in other words, a separation from the world. By this command to Abraham, said the 19th century Torah scholar, God told him that the purpose of his leaving was to become severed from ideas and a way of life that were corrupt. Hence, God's call to Abraham is a call also to his posterity, a fact that Judaism sought to perpetually remember by titling Abraham's biography, both in the Torah and its commentaries, the very words of that call, Lekleka. Early Christianity similarly understood Abraham's call as a call still in force in their day, a call for all to leave their sins and follow Jesus. And as Abraham was commanded to leave the land of idols, so his latter-day posterity are warned of the spiritual idolatry of modern-day Babylon, which the Lord declares will soon fall. Therefore the Lord declares, Go ye out from Babylon, from the midst of wickedness, which is spiritual Babylon. To where are we to go? This same passage specifies the destination. Flee unto Zion. Zion is not made by reforming corrupt and apostate institutions. It is a plant of pure, new growth, beginning with a pure, prayerful lad like the young Abraham, or later like his descendant, young Joseph Smith. Abraham, one man, was called to separate himself physically and spiritually from the Babylon of his day in order to go and establish a new community, even Zion. His call was the turning point in human history, a watershed event, 
setting in motion the greatest chain of events the world has known. It is an event never to be forgotten, as the Lord commanded the righteous through Isaiah, Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you, for he was but one when I called him, but I called him and made him many, for the Lord will comfort Zion. Thus did the Lord call Abraham and send him forth, as implied in the word lek, an important term used in Israelite and other ancient Near Eastern enthronement rituals to send forth one whom the Lord has divinely commissioned. Following the pattern of Enoch, Zion will begin again with Abraham, whom the Lord had sent. Indeed, one Jewish writer sees a parallel between Enoch being taken to heaven and Abraham being commanded to leave his native land. In both cases, God takes his chosen, his loved ones, those who will walk with him, to a place of closer fellowship with God. Genesis misleadingly reports this command to leave as having been accompanied by promises of blessing, which, as the book of Abraham makes clear, were actually not given until years later. But even the command itself, in its original Hebrew, carries the meaning, Go for yourself, or as the Zohar, for thine own advantage to prepare thyself and to perfect thyself, and to know thyself. Or, as Rashi says, for your own benefit, for your own good and happiness, or according to a Hasidic source, to yourself, implying that only by means of this journey would Abraham reach his full potential. The redundancy in Hebrew, lekleka, may thus refer to a journey that has both physical and spiritual dimensions. It is a perfect illustration of the principle expressed by Joseph Smith that the Lord never will give a commandment that is not calculated to promote happiness, for happiness is the object and design of our existence. How well Abraham understood this is seen in the statement in the book of Abraham that even though he left Ur pursuant to the divine command, the Lord has said unto me, Get thee out. Yet he knew it was for his own happiness and would facilitate his quest for further blessing. I, Abraham, saw that it was needful for me to obtain another place of residence, and finding there was greater happiness and peace and rest for me, I sought for the blessings of the fathers, and the right whereunto I should be ordained to administer the same, having been myself a follower of righteousness, desiring also to be one who possessed great knowledge, and to be a greater follower of righteousness, and to possess a greater knowledge, and to be a father of many nations, a prince of peace, desiring to receive instructions and to keep the commandments of God. No text is more important than this one for understanding Abraham. He was seeking neither fortune or fame, the great objects so fervently pursued by the world. What he was seeking was righteousness and its rewards, happiness which never follows wickedness, peace which is a sure reward of righteousness, rest, a spiritual condition which comes to the meek and lowly of heart, and blessings which are always predicated upon obedience. He sought, in other words, the kingdom of God, even Zion, with its gospel and its ordinances, and the authority to administer those to others, the very things the Lord had already promised when he said he would lead him by the hand and give him the priesthood and make him a minister. Abraham sought for his appointment to the priesthood, emphasized President Spencer W. Kimball. He did not wait for God to come to him. He sought diligently through prayer and obedient living to learn the will of God. And Abraham's search, as President Ezra Benson said, is a pattern for modern men to seek their priesthood blessings just as Abraham sought his. For Abraham, it was a difficult search, as the Lord would later tell him, His contemporaries have gone astray from my precepts and have not kept mine ordinances, which I gave unto the fathers. The book of Jubilees likewise laments that in Abraham's day everyone was going astray. Particularly hard for Abraham was the strain of his own father who had sought to have Abraham killed. 
Abraham might easily have refused any further association with this murderous man, but such was not Abraham's nature. In fact, he invited Terah to come with them to a new land, hoping it would open the door to repentance for his father and give him a fresh start. Abraham's forgiving nature is rare in the best of men, but would be replicated again in the person of Joseph Smith, who once explained that nothing is so much calculated to lead people to forsake sin and to take them by the hand and watch over them with tenderness. Terah, humbled also because of famine, accepted his son's hand for forgiving friendship, and, as recounted in the Zohar in the Book of Abraham, repented. By the kindness of the very son he had tried to kill, Terah would lead would be led out of the land in which death now threatened him. So Abraham bid goodbye to Ur of the Chaldees to begin the life of a pilgrim. For Lekleka can also mean keep moving. Perpetual migration was one of the ten trials of Abraham, notes Hugh Nibley. In that age of great migrations, one more family on the move would have seemed nothing unusual. But this journey was truly unique. Undertaken at God's command and in further search of him, it was a journey of faith, simple, earnest, obedient faith. Abraham was willing to give up a certainty for an uncertainty, to leave all that he saw around him for an unseen possession, to resign what was actually his for something that was only promised. But cheerfully and hopefully he set out. Faith would be one of his constraints. It directed him in the whole course of his life. Thus, as related by British Rabbi J.H. Hertz, in obedience to the heavenly voices, he leaves the land of his birth and all the glamour and worldly prosperity of his native place. He becomes a pilgrim for life, enduring trials and privations, and all for the sake of humanity, that it might share the blessing of his knowledge of God and the righteous. And with him, every step of the way was Sarah. When Abram made the great venture of faith, renouncing hearth and home for consciousness' sake, when he lived a nomadic life among strangers, summering and wintering under canvas, enduring trials and afflictions, she was always by his side, lightening the way he traveled, doubling his joys and dividing his sorrows, ordering the peace and comfort of his house, cheering him to face all hardships with constancy of mind. Together they journeyed, taking refuge in the Lord, noted the Muslim historian Al-Tathlabi, they came to a place they called Haran, strategically located at the busy crossroads of three major trade routes that brought a constant flow of travelers and newcomers from Babylon in the south, Nineveh to the east, and Damascus to the west. The land was fruitful and well-watered, the flocks abundant, and the people opened and receptive. Would this be Abraham's ultimate destination? Was this the land that God had promised to show Abraham? Abraham did not know, according to the medieval Jewish scholar Nachmanides, what Abraham did know was that God had promised to lead him by the hand. Arriving at this goodly land, somehow Abraham sensed that here he was to stop and set down roots, and he determined to make the most of the situation. According to the Perk de Rabbi Eliezer, Abraham built a house in a location where all who entered or exited the city would pass by. This would be no exclusive retreat, no hermitage, but an open house, a visitor center welcoming all comers. The land was already blessed with water, but he would be bringing spiritual water to thirsty people. God brought him first to Haran, wrote the 4th century Christian scholar Ephraim the Syrian, like a spring of living water into the midst of those people who were parched. Meanwhile, Abraham himself would drink deeply from the living water provided in the scriptures God had given him, the patriarchal records that he had brought from Ur.